0: Actually, 2019 was the year we actually just sort of noticed and counted. The birds have been disappearing. This is in North America since 1970, and the estimate that came out this year was that we have lost almost a billion like a billion with a B.
1: Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. In thinking about the top stories of 2019, one topic seems to be particularly hot right now. What is it? Climate change, obviously. The debate has always been hmm, heated. But 2019 saw two aspects of climate change get hot, hot, hot. Heat waves and protests. Here to tell us about them is Carolyn Gramling, the earth and climate reporter at Science News Magazine. Carolyn, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me first... Just,
2: just how hot has it been? <laughs> um, it's been pretty hot, but I think the thing that's really significant is not just that we broke a whole lot of temperature records this year, which was done across the Northern Hemisphere, um, but also that there were heat waves, which isn't, you know, it's not just that you hit these highs, you know, like at one point in time, but that the, it's like a persistent wave of heat that, you know, is hitting these record-breaking temperatures for a record-breaking amount of time. So that was the real trend this year that was really startling.
1: So you'll always have a few kind of spiking hot days. But the fact yes. that these were these long, stifling, hideous. Yes. Yeah. And exactly.
2: Yeah. That's something that's really, you know, we're seeing an uptick in these heat waves anyway as a result of climate change. But, you know, this year was it, it was very significant.
1: And you know, most of our savvy readers and listeners will know that hot weather on a given day is not climate change, weather and climate are not the same thing. So the fact that many people in the northern hemisphere will be listening to this with their sweaters on does not mean that climate (laughs) change is not real. What is the connection between heat waves and climate change exactly?
2: So what, there was actually a study that was done there. uh, I'll, I'll sort of back up for a second and say, you know, one of the big, one of the big, like, Headline grabbing events that happened this year in terms of heat waves um, was occurring in Europe um, and actually um, across the Arctic as well, but. The heat waves that were happening in Europe um, in June and early July um, grabbed a lot of headlines. And there's actually a group called the World Weather Attribution Network. And what they do is real-time, what's called real-time climate attribution, where they try to say, okay, this event is happening right now. Can we link it to climate change? And they look at probabilities and they say, you know, how likely is this event to have occurred in a world where climate forcing greenhouse gases um, from human activities did not occur. And they look at those probability differences. And what they said was that the heat wave, especially what was happening in France in particular, was between 10 and 100 times more likely as a result of climate change than would have happened in a, in a non-climate change, non-greenhouse gas enhanced world. So that is, um, how, that is something that people are doing now to sort of say, okay, this is actually unusual. <laughs> this is not something that's just a matter of like natural variability.
1: So it's not so much um, a matter of direct cause so much as it's a matter of increased risk exactly. It's a matter of increased
2: risk. That's a wonderful way to put it. yes, and that is something that I think people are really wrestling with is how do we how do we look at those increased risks and then apply them to you know management solutions um,
1: and adaptation And what were some of the kind of fallout effects of this super hot northern hemisphere summer?
2: Uh, well, Certainly, there have been, you know, a lot of, there have been increased um, numbers of people who went to the hospital. There were, there were heat waves, you know, all, all across the Northern Hemisphere. So we, we saw, you know, there were deaths um, in the double to triple digits in many places. Um, But there were also, you know, Thousands to tens of thousands of people who went to the hospital with heat-related um, health problems um, in Europe. They had to close the schools they, you know, because they, have, they don't necessarily have the kind of air conditioning that's pervasive that it, as it is in the U.S. So there's a lot, of, a lot of ways in which people are trying to figure out how do we, how do we adapt to a world in which these temperatures are just um, so stifling.
1: And hot, super hot days can also increase the effects, for example, of like air pollution on human health, right? Yes, exactly. Yes, that's absolutely true. And there was also to kind of, I don't know, turn up the heat, as it were. (laughs) um, There was another IPCC report. And this one really made an impact. Can you talk about the most recent IPCC report and what exactly it had to say? Sure. Yeah. So
2: this report was
1: particularly significant because it's
2: the first IPCC report that has actually zoomed in on two places that are sort of, you know, ground zero for, for what's happening with climate change. Um, the uh, cryosphere, which is the world, the parts of the world that are covered in ice, or at least have been covered in ice. So Greenland, Antarctica, but also, you know, the high Alps, um, the high mountain ranges. Um, and it also focused on the oceans. And these are two places where even though they have been part of previous IPCC reports, they haven't actually had, you know. The, the zoomed in attention. And so, you know, the, the, um, the results that came out of that report were things that have been sort of coming out in the last year or two, so they weren't necessarily a complete surprise. But the intensity of the findings and the um, sort of repeated message was that these places are being significantly impacted by climate change. So it was, it, it really upped the urgency of the message.
1: And it really made a public impact. People kind of Took it to heart in a way that previous IPCC reports have not really been kind of taken quite as seriously. Why do you think this particular report was just so much more salient than previous ones?
2: I think a lot of that actually has to do with the with the really with the felt effects of climate change that people experienced this year. Honestly, it, it sort of was part of a. You'll pardon the unintentional plan, it was part of a snowball effect uh, where I think, you know, we saw these intense heat waves. We saw this unprecedented melting in Greenland. Um, we saw these wildfires. And I think people were already sort of primed to be concerned. And then this report lands right in the middle of all of that happening. It came out, I think, in September. So it was right at the end of the summer, but it was still quite hot So, um, in the northern hemisphere. So I think that it was it was, you know, it was part of a perfect storm, to use another poor metaphor. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that, you know, and it's interesting because I I had thought that that would be the biggest climate story of the year, was that perhaps Greenland's melting um, or the heat waves or the wildfires or any of, you know, any of those hot things. That to me seemed like the big story of 2019 in terms of climate.
1: Um, But in reality, you know, something else kind of, not superseded, but has gone along with it, which has itself become a big story. Another hot issue and never apologize Mm -hmm. for science puns on this podcast (laughs) um, is because (laughs) of someone who I cannot believe we have not brought up on the podcast yet, Greta Thunberg. Um, Uh I was wondering if you could give a little background on the movement that she started and, and kind of what it became.
2: Yes, absolutely. So um, she started this movement. um, She's from Sweden. And she started this movement, I guess it was, uh, gosh, was it only last year? Um, Yeah, it was August 2018. um, And it was very personal for her. She wanted the Swedish government to um, increase the rate at which it was proposing to lower its greenhouse gas emissions. Um, She felt that it was not going quickly enough, um, according with other scientific um, uh, findings, Greta made a personal pledge to um, protest every Friday until the Swedish government agreed to um, lower, to speed up its plan for carbon neutrality um, by 2045, I think was her target. Um And then she was tweeting about this as she was doing her protests, and that began to snowball again. (laughs) Um, It began to gather um, attention on Twitter um, and um, social media in general, and people were really inspired by this. Other students were really inspired by this, and adults too. Um, And it developed into this movement called Fridays for Future which ultimately became a, a hub for student-led activism about climate change around the globe. Um, and it, it really culminated um, this September um, during the UN Climate Summit. Um, there was also a climate march, and um, it, it, it was, I think, it was a record-breaking 7.6 million was the last count I saw around the world in terms of people who were marching at the same time.
1: Wow. So it really has become a huge global movement. Has yeah. anything come out of it yet? Have the strikes and marches had an effect? I mean, they've generated amazing amounts of, of media attention. And, you know, Greta Thunberg is is a household name, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> before she's even old enough to vote. Um, Which is, yeah, amazing. But yes, amazing yeah. in and of itself. Ha- have Has there been any impact on, you know, policy?
2: I don't know that there's a way to sort of say that it's had a direct impact on policy. I mean, I do think it has helped raise the profile of climate and made it more urgent. It's hard to sort of parse, you know, between the really, you know, remarkable <laughs> weather, um, climate um, things that we saw this year and the climate protests, you know, all of this is sort of raising the profile and raising perhaps the the sense of urgency about, about taking action on climate. Um, so I think it's hard to know what might actually have the most impact. Um, but, you know, it also doesn't need to be a dichotomy. <laughs> so, you know, all of these things together may be helping to, like, drive this conversation forward, and that's only to the good.
1: It does actually feel kind of ironic to me that, you know, it never fails that every winter, like, the first time it snows or something, somebody's going to go blathering around on social media about how, mm. you know, OMG, it's snowing, it's cold, climate change is a hoax. And yep. yet... In order to kind of spark the <laughs> firestorm <laughs> science bond <laughs> um that uh-huh. has arisen around climate change this past summer, it took weather events that people connected with the climate,
2: yeah, you know, so it kind mean, of was the other
1: side of that same yes issue. <laughs>
2: Well, what's interesting is so, you know, and I when I started reporting my year end story and I, you know, I was again, I thought it was going to be about these we- these events. Right. Um, and so I'm talking to scientists and I said, well, what do you think? Is that what, you know, the big climate story is of the year to you as a climate scientist? And I kept getting this sort of like, well, those things, you know, that's a really significant thing, of course. But I have to say I was personally inspired by the protests, um, you know, I have never seen that much activism. I, you know, I feel like it's been a really long time coming. It was like these these climate scientists, on some level, felt heartened by that level of activism and by the passion that people were showing. And so for them, that was kind of one of the big stories, if not the biggest story of the year. So I thought, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of take note of the fact that these people who work in the trenches every day—that's <laughs> what they do. That's what they think is most significant, and they really want to highlight.
1: And I can see why. I feel like, you know, many climate scientists kind of feel they've been wandering in the wilderness, so to speak, for, mm-hmm. for the past, you know, 40 years as they, you know, yeah. sound calls saying, guys, this is happening.
2: Right. Yeah, one of the scientists said something to me that really struck me, I thought was a really encapsulating sentence, which is that, you know, now it's a kitchen table issue for tens of millions of Americans, at least, you know, maybe it has been elsewhere in the world. But in the U.S., it feels like it has now become a kitchen table issue, the sort of thing that you it's not just a rarefied discussion among, you know, people who are in the know or experts, but it's something that everyone is talking about.
1: Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, it's my pleasure especially during such a heated debate. Sorry. Uh Last last pun. Last pun. (laughs) (laughs) We've got links to Carolyn's stories on these topics at scienceforthepeople.ca. But climate change wasn't the only top story this year. Another big story this year involved a single picture of something very, very far away. But that photo made waves all the way through space time. And Rochelle is on it. Over to you.
3: Hey there, this is Rochelle Saunders again. I'm back with Emily Conover, physics reporter from Science News, to discuss a story that surely won't surprise you to hear appear on 2019's list of top science stories. You would have had to have been buried under an awful lot of rocks to have missed this one. I'm talking, of course, of that photo. You know, that photo of the black hole. You're a science nerd. You've definitely seen it. You've definitely heard about it. So, Emily, just in case someone just woke up from a Sleeping Beauty-esque multi-year slumber and they have chosen this podcast to help them catch up on 2019 science news, what are we talking about?
4: Um, yeah, so we're talking about this um, discovery from the Event Horizon Telescope, a group of scientists that took a picture of the black hole in a galaxy called M87,
3: So what exactly did we take a picture of? Because we've sort of, I'm assuming we've taken pictures of black holes before. It's just we can't see them because light can't escape them. So when we talk about a picture of a black hole, what are we actually talking about?
4: Yeah, so in this case, um, what you're seeing is the silhouette of the black hole, basically, on the hot gas that surrounds it. Um, And that gas emits light, and so you're seeing that light coming to us, um, but you're seeing sort of a shadow of where the black hole is, where you cannot see the light because it's all falling into the black hole.
3: So really what we're looking at is the gap where the black hole is and the sort of light or information around it that hasn't quite fallen in yet? Right, yep. So another one, when we say took a picture, what exactly do we mean by that? I mean, this isn't like someone put a super mega zoom lens on a typical camera, right?
4: Right, yeah, they they used a whole bunch of uh, telescopes around the world that they combined into sort of one super giant telescope um, by uh, using a technique called very long baseline interferometry. And so by combining these different signals, um, it ends up operating like the way a huge telescope the size of the Earth would. Um, And with that, they're able to uh, capture the details that they need to see small enough in order to see the, the light and then the silhouette of the black hole.
3: So what does this image confirm for us? I mean, obviously, it's really cool to take an image of something that is notoriously difficult to image. But is there something new here we've learned or information we've confirmed about black holes that we didn't have before?
4: Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, we've sort of further confirmed uh, our belief that black holes do exist and are a real thing. Um, as far as we can tell, they look like what we expect them to look like, according to Einstein's theory of gravity, general relativity. Um, so it's, it's mostly a confirmation of, of what we expected at this point.
3: How long was this image in the making? This feels like it was, I mean, based on uh, when I was following the story when it first broke, this seems like a long-term project that required an awful lot of people to make it happen.
4: Yeah, it was more than a decade of work. And um it took, you know, a collaboration from the entire world, you know, people all over the planet got together to to work on this. Um, And there was a lot of sort of false starts and there was a lot of taking of data that wasn't quite right and a lot of, you know, bad weather (laughs) uh, screwing things up. You know, you have to have good weather in uh, a variety of different continents at the same time in order to get the data that you need. Um, So it was a really complicated undertaking. And uh, it's just uh, fascinating that they were finally able to pull it
3: off. And I know we we were just talking about quantum computing. And obviously, while quantum computers weren't used in this, there was a whole bunch of work that had to be done from a computing standpoint to create software to just kind of mash up all of this data and understand and process what they were getting.
4: Yeah, it's a super complex analysis um, and, and took a lot of work. Yeah, not just on, on the hardware, but on the software and and,
3: and all sorts of stuff. So. so this image was big news. I mean, big, big news. Like, I think there were three simultaneous press conferences or something like that.
4: <laughs> yeah, there was a lot going on. Yeah, it was a, a very exciting time to be a science journalist. Uh, I got to go to the press conference. It's also, I think, was exciting for science fans. Um, there was... Yeah, the the news was plastered with this photo. I think it just lit up the the headlines
3: everywhere. So, obviously, I'm a science nerd. I like black holes because they're cool, Uh, but... I'm just wondering why was it such big news? It's pretty rare for science to get hyped to quite these levels. So I'm curious to uh, get a feel for your thoughts as a science journalist, in particular someone who specializes in physics. Um, did it deserve the hype it got, do you think? Or do you think it was one of these situations where maybe, maybe we overhyped something that was really sexy and easily hyped?
4: <laughs> um, no, I don't think it was overhyped. I think I understand why it drew so much attention, because people are really fascinated by black holes. Uh, most people have heard of black holes, but don't really understand them and uh, want to understand them. Uh, There's sort of these these fascinating objects. And and then the fact that we're, we're able to take a picture, which um, is really satisfying because you can see what the result is, very quickly, and it's it was sort of this evocative picture of you know this hole, right? It's sort of what you expect a black hole to look like, like a big black hole, right? Um, and so I think that that it sort of grabbed people because uh, because of that, and and I would say uh, you know it was a, a brand new type of imaging that we'd done, so I do think it was a significant advance, and and I think. Uh, you know, yeah, it got a lot more coverage than uh, than other science stories. Maybe some science stories that are uh, similar in uh, importance to the scientific world, uh, but this one just happened to be one that really grabbed the public. And I think any time that science grabs the public, you should just run with it because it's you know it's uh, it's just a great time uh, opportunity to educate people about science and about physics.
3: I think that's something kind of interesting about the black hole hook as well is even though most people probably don't know exactly how they work, I think there is enough kind of vague understanding on the broad ideas of a black hole, like it sucks things in, it's really heavy, kind of nothing can escape just from science fiction picking up on it and some kind of background Information in culture that it does, it does make a good hook because everybody kind of knows what a black hole is and what it does, but it, it encourages you to read more about it because it feels somehow more accessible if you know just a little bit about it already. It, I think maybe it makes some of, some of the educational content we're reading that news story a little less intimidating because you're like, Oh, I know black holes. I kind of know how they work.
4: <laughs> yeah, and and I think their importance in in lots of sci-fi and other pop culture has really you know boosted the appeal of of learning about black holes.
3: So what's next now that this team have this image? I mean, what other things are they looking for in the data, or hoping to learn about black holes from this work?
4: Yeah, so I think there's a there's a bunch of stuff that they still want to do. Uh, this is sort of just the beginning um, of these kinds of measurements. So they also have, uh, they're, they're working on a result from the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. Uh, so hopefully we'll have an image of of that black hole as well soon. Um, and they also, you know, are looking at how the black hole changes over time. Um, and looking at uh, more details of the data like the polarization of the light so that's like the direction that the electromagnetic waves are wiggling um, so there's there's a whole bunch of stuff that they're still trying to understand um, and they are going to be taking more data in April so
3: that's excellent I, I'm quite excited to see hopefully someday the first picture of this kind of quality of the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. That one somehow feels closer. It feels more like ours because it's our galaxy. It'll be interesting to see, to see the response to that one in the same way that somehow pictures of our moon are more exciting than pictures of other people's moons, right? (laughs)
4: Yeah, I do think there's some ownership that we have over the the black hole in the center of our galaxy. So yes, that'll be exciting.
3: I love the idea that we think we own the black hole at the center of the galaxy. (laughs) That's such a human thought, even though we both know what we mean when we say that. It feels like a very human approach to the universe to say, that's ours, that black hole, (laughs) hundreds of thousands of millions of light years away. That's ours. I like, it tickles me a little bit, that idea. (laughs) It's very human. (laughs) Yeah, yep. Emily, thank you so much. It's been lovely to have you back for this year's 2019 Top Science Stories.
4: Well, thanks
1: for having me.
3: Throwing it back to Bethany to talk about our next science news story.
1: I don't know about you all, but when I first heard about vaping, it sounded like kind of a good thing. Like it would help people who were trying to quit smoking, give them something else that wasn't so toxic and gross to the people around them. But obviously, I heard about vaping years ago. And we should never underestimate the ability of companies to take an invention and run with it. Concerns about vaping reached new heights this year, and here to talk with us about it is Amy Cunningham, the biomedical reporter at Science News. Hi, Amy. Hi. Hi, Bethany. I just wanted to start by getting some quick numbers. We've seen a lot of reports of vaping illnesses and concerns about teens vaping. And many of us, you know, like you walk along the street, you will see people vaping or you'll walk through the scented clouds that they leave in their wake. How how many people vape? Do we know that?
5: Yes. So we have a variety of different surveys that uh, get numbers on how many people are vaping, but it's going to be broken up by ages. What we're really concerned about these days are how many middle schoolers and high schoolers are vaping. So let me start with those numbers. The um, CDC just came out with new numbers for this year, and they estimate that 27.5% of high school students, which equates to about 4.1 million, are using e-cigarettes and 10.5% of middle school students, which equates to about 1.2 million. That's a lot, and those numbers have continued to increase over the last several years. In terms of adults, there's a study from from last year that has numbers from 2016, and that found that overall, you know, adults, meaning 18 and older, is a prevalence of 4.5%, and the highest numbers are in the 18 to 24-year-olds, young adults, which we'd also be concerned about their vaping habits as well, because nicotine can still impact their brains, and that's about 9.2% of that age group.
1: So it really doesn't seem like it's actually that many adults. It's definitely much more of a, a young people thing.
5: <laughs> it does seem that way. Um, the numbers for the the younger people are much more recent. And I the, the young adults, there's definitely been some data to indicate that that group, it's really been growing in that group as well. Um, but yes, this is something that has really, really become popular among middle schoolers and high schoolers.
1: I also wanted to ask a little bit about how vaping works. Because when I talk to people and when you see people, it, like, people think, some people think that vaping is literally just kind of comfortably inhaling steam. Is no. that, like, how does that, how does it work?
5: <laughs> right. It's not like hanging your face over your coffee in the morning and getting in that steam at all. What an e cigarette does, and actually, people talk about vaping, and, and the way that scientists actually prefer to describe it is that it, aerosolizes chemicals. What an e-cigarette does is it has this heating coil that heats up the liquid and that liquid is going to contain almost always nicotine. As we've seen this year, it might also contain THC. Um, It's going to contain flavors. It could contain a whole tons of different flavors out there consisting of a bunch of different chemicals and uh, other agents that help uh, with forming that liquid and keeping everything in that liquid. And so, when the, the heating coil heats this up, you're basically aerosolizing all of these chemical components in this vaping liquid. That can change a lot of those chemicals as well and make new chemicals that you're inhaling into your lungs. And generally speaking, you don't want to inhale any of that stuff. Your lungs aren't meant to take in chemicals like that.
1: And I also wanted to ask about the chemicals that, you know, when people vape, they're Vaping for the stuff in the vaping. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask about nicotine and THC. Um, how does the nicotine in a vaping product compare to the nicotine in like a cigarette? And do we know anything about like the amount of THC in some of these vaping products as compared to say other methods of consuming THC?
5: So I don't have... Information on the amount of THC that people are taking in versus when they're vaping it versus other means. But I do have information about JUUL, and JUUL is really took the vaping market by storm in the last several years, um, is the top selling, most popular vaping product, and it is really innovative in that it is not. You mentioned seeing people walking down the street making these giant plumes, you know, with their vape pens. Juul is really different. It is, looks very different. It looks like a, a flash drive. And it actually is incredibly discreet. So this is the, this is the, 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 the rise in sales of Juul coincided with the rise in vaping among teens, especially in the last several years. And, it's because it's so discreet, it doesn't make a big puff of, uh, puff of smoke. So kids can c- quickly do this throughout the day and not really be noticed doing it. Juul also has uh, nicotine in their special pods that are used precisely with that vape product. And they have a lot of nicotine in their pods. And the way that their pods work, they have a what's their, their 5% nicotine Juul pod if you take in the full amount of nicotine from that pod when you're when you're using their product, you're basically getting what a smoker would get from a pack and a half to two packs of cigarettes. What? Yes, it's a ton. And because it's so discreet, you can be teens can be using this throughout the day, not really there's nothing stopping them. And you know, they could go through a pod very quickly depending on their use habits.
1: Wow. I, I did actually want to ask about teens um, vaping a little bit more because, you know, that's the numbers are impressive. It's also something that kind of freaks adults out reasonably. What are the kids vaping? Are they vaping nicotine? Are they vaping THC? Some of them I know actually just vape flavor. Do we know what
5: exactly teens and kids are vaping? Most teens are vaping nicotine. That doesn't mean that they aren't also vaping THC. I don't have as much information about the THC side of it. This is, I don't think anyone, any teens are just vaping flavors, Um, especially because Juul has been the most popular product and Juul has a ton of nicotine, but Juul also has flavors. So some kids may think, and and actually there's data that shows, they get interested in it because of the flavors. Uh, Juul comes in, or at least it had. they say they're going to stop selling they the e-cigarette products come in all kinds of flavors there's a million I, not a million it could seem like it's a million there are many 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 flavors out there juul itself uh which we have to keep coming back to because it really is the most popular among uh teens and middle schoolers um juul itself comes in flavors like mango, cucumber, mint, creme brulee and so kids are attracted by these flavors and they may think they're only let's they may think they're only you know vaping flavors, but they're not. They're really vaping a lot of nicotine. Um, these pods come with nicotine and with flavors. And uh, Juul has announced it's going to stop selling some of those flavors. There was just a big study showing that the top two flavors among uh, adolescents are mango and mint. And so they say they have announced they will stop selling those flavors. That's part of the. what's really unfortunate is that a lot of kids don't realize the dangers of these products, and that if they continue to use them, they uh, face a nicotine addiction, which then leads to changes in their behavior, it can lead them to start using other tobacco products because they are constantly after that that fix of nicotine, and it has other health problems as well.
1: Yeah, um, I wanted to ask a little bit about the other health problems because um, one of the reasons that vaping really burst into the news this year was because people have ended up in the hospital and some have yeah. even died due to lung injury. I mean, certainly nicotine is a concern on its own. It's one of the most addictive substances yes. on the planet. Mm-hmm. But it's the lung injuries that have really made people sit up and take notice. Do we know mm-hmm. how many people have reported lung injuries? Um, what kind of percentage? Do we have a percentage?
5: We have numbers for this. The the CDC has been releasing updated numbers most weeks on what they're calling EVALI, and that stands for E-cigarette or Vaping Product Use Associated Lung Injury. As of December 4th, there are 2,291 cases of people hospitalized with EVALI, and there have been 48 deaths. Wow. That's a lot. (laughs) <laughs> it is, and do we yeah.
1: know and why? Like, yeah, why? What is? Do we know what's going on with these products that has resulted in, especially the the spike seen this year in particular?
5: Mm-hmm. So there's been an ongoing investigation. Once the when these these first cases popped up in the beginning of summer, and there has been an inv- investigation since then, and. The, the, the things that make this investigation take so long is there are so many different products out there, um, so many different chemicals that can be in these uh, devices. Um, and it was just last month that uh, federal health officials announced that they did find that vitamin E acetate, which is a thickening agent used in vaping products that contain THC, the the compound in marijuana that produces a high. Products that people who developed eValley had used, they were able to say all showed. This is a small, you know, sample, but of those products that they had that they were able to test, they all had uh, vitamin E acetate. And this is something. You know, vitamin E acetate is something that you you know, it's it's in skincare products. It's It's a vitamin. I mean, yeah, it
1: sounds like vitamins. Vitamins are good.
5: (laughs) Exactly. And the thing that's different here is that, you know, consuming vitamin E, taking a tablet that has vitamin E in it, that goes through your digestive system. But vitamin E would behave totally differently taken into the lungs. And so this gets back to the lungs aren't meant to break down these chemicals Uh, It's a different system than, you know, say if you ingest something like vitamin E and your body handles it just fine or your skin can can uh, absorb it.
1: And I wanted to ask about this because, you know, there's a lot of blame that has been laid on illegal vape products um, for, you know, this vitamin E, um, but also for other things, you know, and especially uh, illegal vape products containing THC. Um, Is it all the subject of Is that all? what's causing these issues? Is it all, you know, evil bad dudes making vape products in their basements? Or
5: <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think they totally know yet. They definitely have a lot of, they have a lot of concerns about illegal, illegal products for sure. And, and there is, this is still ongoing. The, 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 there's some indication that some of these products may be black market products. There has been uh, recent news that perhaps this doesn't just, you know, that this extends to more than that, you know, even legal vape products. Um, it's still very murky. And it's also, also, although most of the people who have had these injuries reported that they had used THC products, they use other products too. And there's, as I've said, there's many chemicals, different things that are in these products, in these vape uh, devices. And so it's, it's not clear yet if it's going to be just this one thing or if it's going to be that some other things also are part of what's causing these illnesses.
1: Well, Amy, I hope you will be keeping an eyeball on the vape situation. Thank you so much for helping us uh, see through the smoke, as it were. <laughs>
5: You're very welcome. <laughs>
1: We've you. linked to articles from Amy Cunningham at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, you know what's king? Quantum is king. In fact, it's not king, it's supreme. But what does quantum supremacy even mean? Do not fear. Rochelle is here. Over to you. Oops. Hi, friends. Before we move on, after we recorded this segment, Amy got access to some new numbers from the Monitoring the Future survey about just how many teens are vaping marijuana. The numbers? Between February and June of 2019, 14% of 12th graders and 12.6% of 10th graders had vaped marijuana in the previous 30 days. We've linked to coverage of those new numbers on our website. Now, take it away, Rochelle.
3: Rochelle Saunders here, picking up with our next top science story from 2019. This one I've been following as someone interested in both physics and computing. Joining me is Emily Conover, physics reporter at Science News, to catch us up on the latest news from the field of quantum computing. Emily, welcome back to Science for the People. Thanks for having me. So in September this year, some rumors started surfacing that Google had achieved a milestone in the quest for quantum computing, which is known as quantum supremacy. And later in October, Google officially confirmed they were in fact making this claim. So setting aside for a minute what Google did or didn't actually do, what is quantum supremacy?
4: Yeah, so it's a a milestone that uh, people have been working towards, um, and it marks the point where a quantum computer can do something that a standard computer that's not based on quantum mechanics cannot. Um, And it doesn't have to be a useful calculation. It's just anything that it can do that um, a a non-quantum computer can't, and that includes supercomputers. So the biggest supercomputer in the world if it cannot do this task that a quantum computer can do, then that's quantum supremacy.
3: Got it. So when we're talking about uh, a classic computer can't do this task, or a current supercomputer can't do this task, I'm assuming that there's like a benchmark of we're not going to keep trying for like a 1000 years to see if it can do this task. It's something that would take if it's possible a real long time.
4: Right. Yeah, it's it, it is a there's a, a a a long time that it would take to to do the task. Sometimes you can get to a point where it's impossible to do it within, you know, the age of the universe or something like that. Um, and, and but at this for this discovery, I think it was uh, thousands of years.
3: So how long did it take the quantum computer to do this?
4: It took it about 200 seconds.
3: Oh, wow. So that's a significant difference.
4: Yeah, it really is.
3: So I want to talk a little bit more about this milestone, kind of in the abstract, this quantum supremacy milestone. I mean, it sounds like it's a major milestone, um, just because it's, I guess it sounds like it's the first time that a quantum computer will actually be able to significantly outperform a classical computer.
4: Yeah, that's, that's pretty much what it is. Um, but it always has to be uh, sort of clarified that It's not a particularly useful thing that this quantum computer did. Um, And and that's what quantum supremacy means. Um, It does not mean that quantum computers are now going to be doing everything. You know, you're not going to be doing word processing on a quantum computer. Uh, You're not going to be doing calculations on a quantum computer anytime soon. It's just this very specific task.
3: So... uh, since it was such a specific task and since it doesn't seem to have much utility, can you talk a little bit about like the particulars around what this task was? Obviously, quantum computing starts to get into some wacky physics stuff um, at the quantum level, but uh, even just like a high level overview of what it was that Google did or has claims to have done, um, I think would be really helpful for people to understand what applications this thing doesn't have. <laughs>
4: Right. Well, so what they did was they basically they had a a, a quantum computer with 53 qubits. And these are the qubits are these quantum version of the bits that you find in your normal computer. Uh, A normal computer can be uh, a value of either zero or one for its bits, but a qubit is uh, some weird mashup between the two called the quantum superposition, um, and so they have 53 of these qubits. And what they do is they basically perform random operations on those 53 qubits. Um, it's like if you just wrote a code by you know mashing your keyboard and having it do random stuff. <laughs> um, then they run that program, and what they get out is a bunch of random numbers. Um, but those random numbers have a certain distribution that is you know, determined by quantum mechanics, that is sort of difficult for a normal computer to reproduce.
3: Interesting. So this very much has no utility. It sounds like like zero utility, even potentially from a quantum physics standpoint.
4: Um, well, I would say the 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 funny thing is that it it actually has. Uh, a little bit of utility for the purpose of actually generating random numbers. You Mm. can sort of verify that these numbers are in fact random uh, if you use a a system like this. And, and, you know, it's not actually that easy to get truly random numbers from a computer. Um, So that's uh, sort of the one task that this might actually be sort of useful for, but it's not one that's like particularly going to change the world.
3: (laughs) That's interesting. Um, For anybody who doesn't have a deep knowledge of computing, uh, I'm aware that randomness is really difficult, like true proper randomness is really difficult to get a computer to do Mm -hmm. because a human has to somehow program it to be random. And so if we want sort of true randomness for a computer, we have to kind of feed in other things. There's a, And correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's quite famously someone's got like a wall of lava lamps that they use to feed into <laughs> a, a computing center in order to generate that randomness.
4: Yeah, um, it is difficult to get randomness. And so people have come up with all kinds of various ways to, to try to get truly random numbers. And so this is one uh, possible way that you could do it.
3: That's cool. So there is potentially some small utility here. Um, but it sounds like we don't have to go, uh, running for the hills anytime soon. Cause of course, anytime we talk about quantum computing, um, we get into quite quickly a rabbit hole that gets into a lot of questions around modern cryptography. Um, because a lot of modern, uh, computing and modern cryptography works because certain types of computing activities are really hard. Um, Whereas some of that stuff, if we can get quantum computers to work a lot faster on those types of tasks, uh, it can completely potentially break quant- uh, break sort of modern cryptography.
4: Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, there's you know sort of the 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 big uh, application for quantum computers that people talk about is you know the the fact that um, we our encryption is based on factoring large numbers into um, the primes that make them up. And that is very difficult uh, with a classical computer, as you said, and um, with a quantum computer, it could be a lot faster. And so that type of encryption wouldn't work anymore once we have uh, quantum computers. But I would say that the quantum computers that we will need in order to do that application will be much more powerful than what we have right now. So it may be decades before we get to that point.
3: So this news is really about a benchmark in research, a kind of small step for mankind kind of thing. Um, in a real sense, it's not actively changing anything for the computing world right now. We don't have Dell or Apple rolling out new quantum computers in the next five years.
4: Right? Yeah, it's more it's sort of planting a flag, uh, saying, you know, we're here, we can do this. We we've shown that in fact, quantum computers do have capabilities that Um, other computers do not, which is an important thing to show and and hadn't definitively been shown yet. Um, And so that's sort of where this stands as a marker for um, the potential usefulness of this technology in the future.
3: I'm curious to uh, find out what some of the response has been to this milestone that Google has claimed. Um, have you been sort of watching some of the response? Do you have any idea of how kind of the broader industry or the, the other research groups have responded to this claim from Google?
4: Yeah, I would say um, the response has been pretty split. Um, There's a a good number of people who think it's a really exciting development and, you know, saying it's opening up a new paradigm. And um, it's uh, then there's another half of the community that says, uh, you know, quantum supremacy isn't the right milestone to shoot for anyway. Or um, IBM, which says that they think that this actually doesn't count as quantum supremacy. Um, IBM came out with a paper, uh, just before Google's peer-reviewed paper came out, but after the, um, the rumors about the, the paper, uh, which said, uh, that in fact the, uh, the task which the, was supposed to take the uh, supercomputer 10,000 years to do, uh, but which the quantum computer performed in 200 seconds, they said that Actually, if you had a better, they, they came up with a better algorithm for doing that calculation on the supercomputer, and they said that it could be done in much less time, and so that it was, in fact, reasonable to achieve with a supercomputer, which would mean that they hadn't actually achieved quantum supremacy. So it's a little bit, uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of back and forth, and there's a little bit of question uh, both about how important it is and, and about uh, whether they've actually done it or not.
3: Where did the initial idea of quantum supremacy as a milestone come from? Because it seems to currently be a bit contentious, but I'm assuming at some point it was proposed by someone with an interest in that particular research to sort of be a big enough milestone that people have taken notice.
4: Yeah. Um, it was a theoretical physicist named John Preskill, who's a, a big name in the quantum physics world. And in 2012, he came up with this as a milestone and, uh, a, a lot of people latched onto it, and, uh, some people did not. There's also been criticism. Uh, some people don't like the term supremacy because of its associations with white supremacy. Mm. Uh, so there's a movement to sort of change the terminology. Um, but that's kind of been the term that has stuck, uh, so far. That's what, what people are using. Uh, but there's other people who say, Um, We should use the term quantum advantage or that we should not even shoot for quantum supremacy, that we should shoot for, you know, an actually useful task as opposed to one that, um, you know, is not necessarily useful.
3: It's kind of an interesting concept, the idea of a useful task in computing, because I think like. If I think back to just other types of research, we always kind of push back against usefulness as being a valid claim to justify certain types of research or certain types of activity, because sometimes usefulness is discovered later. Um, sometimes you take a thing that was just interesting and cool and kind of a, a bit of a new way to do something or a new way to think of something. And 50 years, 20 years, 100 years down the road, you suddenly find a way to utilize that. I mean, prime numbers, really big prime numbers are a great example of something that was a mathematical curiosity, didn't really have any applications. And now we've got a bunch of cryptography based off of really large prime numbers. So it's interesting to me that there are people kind of pushing for something useful, um, but I, I'm curious to know how well they define what useful means.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it is a uh, it is a question of uh, you know usefulness is in the eye of the beholder, and you know this this uh, idea that you could use the um, the techniques developed by Google to generate random numbers that kind of came up uh, late in the game. Uh, they weren't initially planning to use it for that, but then they sort of. Uh, it sort of became apparent that in fact, did have a little bit of a use. Um, So yeah, it is kind of a funny, uh, funny term. Um, I agree.
3: Awesome. Well, anything kind of coming out of this research? I know it's only been out for a couple of months, but it sounds like there's been a little bit of back and forth in that particular industry. But have we heard any word on sort of what next for the team from Google?
4: Um, Well, Google uh, has said that one of the things they want to do next is uh, demonstrate a technique called quantum error correction. Um, And so this is a big problem for uh, quantum computers. The qubits that they work with are very delicate and, you know, you can get errors like a one flipping to a zero or something else. Um, And so they need a way to correct for that if you want to be able to perform calculations that actually give you uh, a sensible answer. And so there's various ways of doing this, and that's um, basically by combining multiple qubits into one to sort of act as one larger qubit. Um, And in that way, you're able to correct for these errors. And so that's one of the things that they said they're going to be working on.
3: It's an interesting part of quantum computing that we take something like computing where there's a very firm sense of logic and a very clear understanding on how that logic works. It either is or it isn't. It's a one or a zero. And the um, transition kind of in my computing brain to think about quantum computing where fuzziness is like a built-in part of how it works, which seems like a bug rather than a feature, but I know at the (laughs) physics level, there's some benefits of that. It's, it's a bit of a strange thing for, uh, someone who works quite heavily in the tech industry, which is, which is where my day job is to kind of try and think about that being a benefit.
4: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty strange. I mean, um, everything about quantum mechanics is, is pretty strange. So, um, the quantum computing is just the same.
3: It'll be really interesting to see what a world built on quantum computers might look like, just like I'm sure 50 years ago, it would have been strange to think about what a world built on classical computers would look like. And here we are in that world. So I'm interested to see what the next one looks like. Yeah, me too. Awesome. And we'll throw it back to Bethany Brookshire for the last of today's top science stories.
1: Welcome back. Maybe you've been listening to our top five and thinking climate change, black holes, vaping, quantum. Okay. But what about those Amazonian wildfires? Weren't they huge? Well, sort of. The Amazon is burning, took the world by storm, but it doesn't mean quite what you think it means. Instead, it actually highlights just how much we are, well, flaming out, as it were, of our planned decade of biodiversity decade of biodiversity, you might say. What is that? Exactly. It's the decade theme you probably never heard of. And here to talk to us about it is Susan Millius, the biology reporter at Science News. Welcome, Susan.
0: Oh, tickled to be here.
1: Okay, when we were chatting about this issue, you mentioned specifically the United Nations decade of biodiversity. What was that supposed to be about?
0: Oh, it was supposed to be totally fabulous. How could it not have been totally fabulous? Um, it is a It is under the uh, auspices of a treaty the u n declared that two thousand eleven through two thousand and twenty would be a decade of biodiversity, and they had goals for how to meet it and they had included indigenous people and they had thought about what concepts they wanted to uh, focus on and the decade of biodiversity should have been amazing and it really wasn't. Nobody heard about it. The UN declared it and in 2011 through 2020 they had a bunch of goals that they wanted to meet to help reduce the loss of all kinds of creatures and preserve uh, lands for indigenous people and restore destroyed areas, and already it's hopeless that only a few of the goals have been met. And sort of worse, nobody really seems to have heard of it.
1: Why? Why was it such a a flop? <laughs> it sounds so terrible. Why was it bad? Why didn't it go well?
0: <laughs> I don't know. I wish I did. I mean, how awesome. What, what could be better than biodiversity to think about for ten years? I mean, we, it's a terrible word. I mean, I, I wish we didn't call it biodiversity. Um, because it's, it's nature. It's every, it's living things and it includes narwhals and bioluminescent fungi in the Amazon and, and weird birds with mating habits involving Helpers and somersaults in the air and extravagant tails and it involves ants that are you know bite like a bullet and it it involves just amazing things all the reason we love nature TV and for some reason it sort of got lost
1: and it was especially kind of sad to me that it did because 2019 actually saw several updates on global biodiversity and you know by biodiversity we mean the diversity of all biological things that's plants that's animals that's fungi that's insects everything and the problem was the updates that we saw on global biodiversity were depressingly large numbers and i wanted to talk about one of them which was the 1 million species that we are industriously killing off Oh, Where does that number uh,
0: come from? <laughs> oh, 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 I wish I could say it came from, oh, brain control from an evil planet trying to depress us out of existence or something, but no, it comes from a report, that's massive extravagant report that is in draft form uh, from the UN entity that will be overseeing this, and it's... So far, in draft form, it's over 1,500 pages, and they have estimated that uh, there are, they estimate something like 8 million species of plants and animals. They don't even try to get into the rest of the glorious wealth of uh, life on Earth. But Wait, was
1: that 8 million?
0: Eight, yes. Eight, eight, eight million. million! And. And In in total. And that's just plants and animals. And then for putting together, looking at losses, looking at other things, they say that maybe about one in eight is probably seriously under threat. And unless we can turn things around, we will lose one in eight.
1: And is that because... We are eating them? Is that because we are... What what is the main driver of this loss?
0: Well, the answer is sort of yes. Um, It is just about any driver you could think of. The biggest one they name is... Oh, good heavens, they have this very tangled way of saying it. But basically, it's sort of humans using land and water for our human purposes. And like agriculture, like fishing, um, uh clearing forests and paving paradise and uh building houses, roads, all of this there there are a lot of us, and this is just tearing up habitat and it's tearing up so much habitat that there's just not that much left
1: and it's not just you know land dwelling. Um, animals and plants, and uh, that estimate actually didn't even include
0: fungi, did it? Um, <laughs> no, no. And how, oh, 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 it would be so sad if we left, if we lost fungi and we never even knew about them, because they're so extravagant.
1: Yes, and uh, important. I mean, bioprospectors find new yep. antibiotics in fungi all the time.
0: Yes, and we would be up to our personal parts in, uh, in you know, in stuff in detritus, in dead things. I mean, yes, we need we are so. In- yes, yes, we are so important. I mean, they are so important in our um, in, e- in the way ecosystems work.
1: But it was also it's not just these kind of land-bound organisms. 2019 also saw a really important decline in bird numbers. How many birds have we lost?
0: Ah, and and Actually, two thousand and nineteen was the year we actually just sort of noticed and counted the birds have been disappearing. This is in North America since one thousand nine hundred and seventy and the estimate that came out this year was that we have lost almost a billion like a billion with a bee
1: you know it it 's so sad to think about I, I was thinking about how everyone thinks that we, when we got rid of DDT we saved the world from Silent Spring, Rachel Carson's yeah. Silent Spring, but I feel like maybe we didn't.
0: No, I don't think we did. Well, there were, to be fair about it, there were some birds that sort of did better, there are some that did worse, but the thing that was really disturbing about it is that I wouldn't have predicted which ones did worse, like starlings, which are a uh, the little birds that are pests in a lot of places. They drive farmers crazy. They're invasive. They t- the little brown in all ones, right? Of the, 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 no, those
1: are European well, sparrows. No, starlings these are the starlings are
0: actually sort of shiny black ones. There. The iridescent uh, ones, the
1: pretty ones, yeah.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And they, uh, they, had, they declined precipitously. And who would have thought we'd have fewer starlings? That's not that unnerving.
1: Are there any that did relatively okay? (laughs) Any species?
0: Uh, uh, Yes. Uh, Though off the top of my head, I am drawing a blank.
1: That's okay. Um, But again, I, I mean, why is this happening? You know, people don't... This is not like the fate of the passenger pigeon in the United States where... Basically, the passenger pigeon died out because we literally ate them all. We shot them and we ate them all. Um, but it, it, this is not that. People don't go around shooting starlings for fun. At least I, I hope people don't do that. That seems like a not super great pastime. But people, people don't. So why are these bird populations declining?
0: Well, the, by the way, the, the parlor game of What happened to the passenger pigeon just goes on and on. So um, it might have been Colonel Mustard uh, in the library with a candlestick, but the these other declines—it's the cumulative effect of just bunches of things. There are so there are so many people, and that our cats, for example—I mean, everybody will hate me for saying this—but cats um, do kill a fairly large number of birds, and there is a lot of debate about the effect of it, um, and who knows how it plays out in different species, but for ground-nesting birds, that can be a problem. And for windows, that's I mean, building windows, birds thumping into windows, um, is there's another big chunk of birds that die then. But maybe the biggest thing is just, again, loss of habitat, Uh, loss, disruption in food, Um, fewer places to nest, Uh, rougher migration, you know, fewer places to rest on migration. Um, It's just too much.
1: Well, I will say I am a cat lover, and I am not offended. Keep your cats indoors.
0: Well, <laughs> thank thank you for saying that, Bethany, because I adore cats. Several of my best friends were cats, and um, I feel terrible about it. But I also love birds. Yeah,
1: and cats and birds do not get along. But I do want to talk about the Amazonian fires, because they did capture a lot of attention. And part of the reason that news about them spread like... <clears throat> wildfire, as it were, is because scientists actually reported logging more than 11,000 wildfire incidences in the Amazon. But that number I found out from you does not mean what we think it means. What does that 11,000 incidences mean?
0: Well, that 11,000 number comes from some work done at the University of Maryland, looking at one particular group of uh, remote sensing uh, instruments on f- satellites, and they're looking at an old group because that way they can go back uh, farther than if they look at the, some of the more modern ones. But the old group uh, has a big pixel. I mean, each each it's not individual fires; it's um, just detections, or you can you can think of it as pixels.
1: So each, uh, each incidence is a pixel, really.
0: Yes, and so it can mean that maybe there are two little fires in two small fires. A fire can't be too little, I don't think. But um, just two little fires in a, an area would be still counted as one. But if you have a big fire, really huge fire that goes across a whole area, then it could be counted as several pixels, and these pixels are pretty large. They're one, in kil- this instrument, they're one kilometer uh, on, you know, a square.
1: Oh, that's very large, right? yeah.
0: Yeah, but the Amazon is big, and this, that um, 11,000 number comes from just one state, which had extraordinary activity. Was and- it
1: actually a bad fire year in the Amazon?
0: It was a bad year in recent history. Um, There were back in the 90s. There were some extremely bad years. This was. um, It was the worst August that the we've seen for quite a while. But and overall, it was the worst. It was the second worst. Um, But the uh, as to whether. It, it wasn't just, I mean, this is not California. It's not a, a weather thing. It's probably a people and politics thing. And because California, the, these, this is rainforest and a lightning strike by itself is unlikely to cause a huge multi-pixel blaze. This is deforestation and land clearing. Uh, you know, burning. I mean, regular farmers use fires to clear th- their land, but also there was a lot of reporting out of Brazil, and I talked to two people there who who were, I thought, quite plausible, talking about how they thought this was a renewed interest in trying to aggressively clear land and. Maybe set fires that might get into other parts of the forests and sort of uh, sort of show that agriculture was was really you know really the future and not worry about the silly old rainforest.
1: So this was not technically you know we think a lot about you know full grown rainforest burning, um, but this was not an accident, these were kind of deliberately set to clear that forest?
0: We are waiting, well, I am waiting for the nice folks at the University of Maryland to finish their their analysis because they actually um, the, they say the fire season sort of continues through October and so they are and they Then fuss over their pixels and get rid of things that might be flares from solar arrays and the sort of thing. And then they try to analyze what kind of land was actually burning in the area. And so far, what I'm hearing from them is they think there was a bunch of sort of cleared land that was, I mean, of already sort of chewed up land that was that was degraded. That, what uh, does that burning.
1: mean for the Amazon itself?
0: It's worrisome for the Amazon itself. It the Amazon is the well, it's arguably the greatest or one of the greatest reservoirs of biodiversity in on the planet, and it uh, the lower part of in geologic time flips from being a rainforest to being not so much. And, but much of it has been a rainforest for a long time and it has tremendous wealth of stuff that, we, that people are discovering and exploring and stuff we haven't named, stuff we probably haven't imagined. I just got an email from, this morning from a guy talking about a bird he's excited about going back to he thinks is a new species that he's going back to study next year, um, and it's a it's an unusual treasure trove of of living things of nature, and uh, it's getting chewed up, and if agriculture overtakes a lot of it, it's just we're going to lose, well, we're already losing things that we probably don't even know the names of.
1: Well, Susan, that's hideously depressing, but thank you so much.
0: (laughs) Oh, my pleasure.
1: We've got links to the stories of Susan that, Susan's that we just talked about at scienceforthepeople.ca. And we're sorry to depress you here at the start of 2020. But don't let it uh, burn you out, as it were. Let it fire you up. I hope that 2020 is a year of climate change and environmental attention and action for all of us. Do you think we picked the totally right stories for 2019? The totally wrong stories? Let us know. You can tweet us at Sci for the People. That's the number four Sci for the People. You can also tweet me at BEE Brookshire or Rochelle at, at@ after three and accept our wishes for a happy and healthy and sciencey new year from all of us here at Science for the People.
3: Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, And its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders.